everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelance and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are privileged to have with us current ATP coach, Neville Godwin. Neville was a former top 100 singles player, reached the fourth round of Wimbledon during his playing career. Neville has had great success transitioning to the coaching world, where he coached South African player Kevin Anderson to a world top 10 ranking and a U.S. Open final appearance in 2017. Also in 2017, Neville won ATP Coach of the Year. He's currently helping coach Riley Opelka. Please welcome to the pod, Neville Godwin. Neville, thank you very much for uh, talking tennis with Steve and I. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Dave. Uh, looking forward to having some good laughs and uh, getting some good good conversation. Well, I think Steve and I have every almost everything with Riley Opelka covered because we recently had J.Y. Aboni on. So I guess what I guess the, the missing piece after you is, is Jay Berger, right, Steve? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. But uh, we had a good conversation with JY, and we know we're going to have a good conversation with, with you, Neville. Um, I guess uh, before we kind of get started in your tennis background, how did the connection with um, Riley start? We know JY had to step away, and congratulations to JY. Just had a baby, a healthy baby, and everything, and he's doing great. So if you give us a yeah, quick check on that, and then we'll get into more of your background. Sure. Um, well, obviously, I'm, I'm really good friends with a bunch of the agents on tour as well. So, you know, sort of. I was with uh, Chung uh, Hyun from Korea the last sort of four years. Unfortunately, super unlucky guy, just injury after injury after injury. And uh, Riley's agent actually reached out to me last year, you know, probably September, October time. And, you know, just to find out what I was up to and to see what, because obviously they knew JY would, would be going to be having a baby. And um, I said, well, yeah, let's give it a shot. And I spent a couple of weeks with Riley and Jay in, in November in Florida and things went really well. And yeah, so that's kind of how it all happened. And uh, I think I'm, I'm getting a bit of a reputation as being a big guy coach. Yeah, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin and Riley, that's, that's true. So we're going to get into your coaching career in a little bit. But if you don't mind, um, why don't you kind of start and give Steve and I a background uh, in your journey starting in the sport of tennis, and then we can go into your junior career. I know 1993 was a gigantic year for you. You were the runner-up in doubles at both the French Open and Wimbledon, and then you and your partner won the U.S. Open junior doubles titles. That's three slams in a row that you at least made the final. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I, I come from a family of three boys. Uh, my father coached tennis. I was the youngest, which is always a privilege because you get the best of everything, you know. I uh, always had my brothers working hard, uh, and I had to try to keep up with them. So uh, I, got, I was very fortunate to Tennis South Africa helped me for a significant part of my time of my junior career and yeah i had a we we're very lucky we had some atp events only a couple in south africa when i was young 15 16 17 and i was able to get a couple of atp points from that which i didn't actually travel around the world playing much juniors as the guys do now um yeah and we were a really good doubles team i mean we'd had success on on atp challenges and atp 250s already so we were really disappointed with the wimbledon result that year um but we got we got our own back at us open so that was great and college was not something that was really on your list at that point i mean obviously you had a ton of success was was pro something that you were really focused on yeah i mean at that stage it was just it was only really one direction i, I, I in hindsight i wish i had gone to college i think it would have really helped me a lot just to, to calm me down for maybe two three years get a little bit better physically uh get a few sort of free matches if you like 
um, and also just give get, give yourself options. I always describe it to people that ask me what if I should go to, if they should go to college. I always describe it like in life, you're always better having more options rather than less. You know, um, yeah. And I mean, you know, at that stage, I mean, I was ranked about 300 ATP already. So there was a couple of colleges that asked me, but I was kind of already going down that path. And yeah, so it was. It, it took a little while because I lost some funding uh, at the end of my sort of the 18th year, end of my junior year. So two really difficult years of grinding it out, playing satellites and, you know, wherever you can. Um, it was a great learning curve for me uh, in later on in my year, but I think it took a lot out of me as well. Just, I mean, I see guys now playing until they're 33, 34, 35, 36. And in the 90s, that was just not even conceivable, you know. I, I do know that. Steve knows that too. And we're going to talk about your playing career. I know Steve has some questions about your Wimbledon run, but I know you played all the slams. You got to the fourth round at Wimbledon after having to qualify, I believe. Um, yeah. Getting into the fourth round, you, you defeated Boris. Um, he was the finalist in 1995. You played him the final the following year. You know, there was a wrist injury, um, but got through that match and, um, you had a good run there. I mean, no small task defeating Boris at Wimbledon. I don't care that it wasn't a completed match because you got hurt still. I mean, I know Steve wants to explore that match a little bit. How nervous were you to set up? And I'll let Steve kind of go from there. Yeah, I mean, it, it, what, were your, what were you thinking going into that one? Uh, I mean, it must have been you knew you knew that Boris was a Wimbledon institution. You knew he was one of the great grass court players. Was that scary or was it the kind of thing where you felt like this, this is a, a really essentially an opportunity for a lifetime regardless of what happens i'm going to give a good account of myself and give it my best and i'll be able to tell my grandchildren one day that i played boris becker at wimbledon yeah i mean of course there's always a great opportunity you know we we when we grow up playing tennis and hitting tennis balls as a kid you dream of playing a Wimbledon center court Wimbledon number one court you dream of playing the big players on the big stages and uh, it kind of happened out of nowhere that you know, I, I was, I'd kind of been struggling and then I did a, a really good sort of training block in Vancouver before I went out there and I played really well in qualifying. I beat the end of pays in qualifying, uh, final round of qualifying, which was actually a really good win at the time. Beat a good buddy of mine, Grant Stafford, second round, who I'd never beaten before. And so I, I was pretty confident. I mean, it, when you get to those sort of stages, you don't really, you try not to think about winning or losing. You're just going to go out there and try and execute what you, what you know you can do. And I also very firmly believe that when you're playing in those stages, really try, try your best to play within yourself. Too often you, you see guys getting onto the big stage and they try to play a level above where they actually can play and they end up just, it becomes a one-way show very, very quickly. Wimbledon is very unique because obviously as a qualifier and just as a main draw player, you, you're in the number two locker room. The seated players obviously get into the seated locker room. So then, what, what was their prior custom uh, before court, court one or center court was you'd actually get moved from your locker room into the seated locker room sort of an hour before the match started. And so you, you were just, there were masters of taking you way out of your own comfort zone. Um, so it, it was, it was very exciting, all very new. And I was able to just hold my nerve and, and play pretty good tennis. I felt early on that, um, there was something not right with Boris. He, the ball was not coming off of his racket at all. Um, it, it wasn't really particularly scary the way he was playing. So uh, I found out much later on that he actually had quite a, quite a severe head cold that week. So, uh, and then obviously when, when he hurt his wrist, I, I didn't actually see it. I just saw the ball go out and I turned around. So I honestly did not know what was, what was going on. So it was, 
uh, you know, great, great experience. And then, you know, obviously the first question when you get into the media room, you know, when you go from the, the media room where you get one person sitting and talking one-on-one to the, to the main one where you got 40 people and they said, well, you know, do you feel sorry for him? And my, my first answer was, how do you feel sorry for someone who's already won three Wimbledon? So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah, that was it. I mean, just a great experience. And uh, I mean, if I see Boris now, we talk and we're, we're pretty friendly. So it's, it's great. He's a great guy. Well, head to head, I, ch- I checked the ATP website before we did the recording. Head to head, you got a one to zero win, uh, <laughs> win loss record over, over your career over Boris. So not many players can say that. So, um, your your one title that you had was at Newport, and I know Steve. That's that's near and dear to Steve's heart. Steve was inducted to the Hall of Fame there in 2017, and Steve's been going to that event for for years. So again, I kind of leave it to to Steve. Talk a little bit about that place and. And Neville, if you can talk about uh, your run when you won it there in 2001. So, yes. Yeah. Before you get into that, just tell me a little bit about the run itself and the satisfaction you got in winning the title. And also, were you aware that Yvonne Lendl was going into the Hall of Fame and there was a ceremony on the Saturday or Sunday, whichever it was that year? Uh, I mean, was that on your radar or were you strictly thinking about the tournament? How aware of the ceremony were you? Not aware at all. I, I did not know it. Uh, I had a little bit of experience in Newport. Obviously, I played there in 98 as well, made the final, had a couple of really good wins. Um, so I, I felt really good playing there. And then had a couple, I mean, obviously, grass is this such a unique experience. I mean, you can play really well and lose. I think I lost the following year after, in 99. I lost to Jason Stoltenberg, 7-6 in the third. Um, you know, in t- t- 2001, I got there. I had a good Wimbledon. I had a really good grass court season. And the draw kind of opened up a little bit. Um, I mean, I played really good match in the quarterfinals. I remember that I played Mikhail Lodra, uh, probably played one of the best matches I ever played on tour. I beat him 6-2, 6-1 at Newport, which is a pretty pretty good result for me. And then uh, I also beat Kenneth Carlson in the semis, who I'd never beaten before. And then I played, you know, Martin Lee, who I think took out James Blake, if I'm not mistaken, in the semifinals. Uh, so, you know, and he was someone I knew pretty well. I practiced with him a couple of times and I just really wanted to go out and be proud of my performance in the final. And, you know, cause I, I and when I played the final in 98, I, I really was super, super disappointed with, with, I was just too nervous. Uh, and so I really wanted to go out there and, and, and go out there and play to win and play aggressive and play my style and try not to think about the fact that I was in the final. And I, I was able to do it, played really, really well that final. Is that a place that you really like to, to go see and kind of walk around a little bit with all the history that's there? I mean, there's there, the, the walls bleed tennis history there, right, Steve? Yeah, no doubt about it. But it sounds to me, Neville, like you didn't really have time for that. I don't mean that in a critical way, but you were so focused on what you were doing. Did you ever even go into the museum while you were there? I actually did. Uh, only I think we had a draw party and we went through the museum and I went through once prior to, to 2001, actually. And uh, it's just, it's a really cool place. And I remember I did a, uh, the photo shoot with the trophy was with Michael Baz. And we did that on this, the sort of the center court. That's not the center court, you know, like the really old school court, uh, which, I, which was really cool. So I got a lot of fond memories of there. I've got a ton of pictures and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love the, 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 the town. Uh, you know, we stayed in, down in the harbor and, you know, there's good restaurants and it's just a very easy vibe. So it's, it's, it's really nice, especially after the just coming from a grand slam. And are you like a lot of these players in that you, you got on a kind of a, 
shall we say, a superstitious role with this uh, with the same meal every night in Newport or or, or not? Great question, Steve. I, I am pretty superstitious, so I would have imagined that that would have been the case. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, if I remember right, I don't think I restrung my racket all week, actually, which is kind of bizarre. <laughs> if you if you look at how the guys are now, I mean, they, they're changing rackets all the time. And and I, I, I also, I didn't like a new grip on my racket. I like kind of like my hand molded into the grip a little bit. So, yeah. It's but you, definitely you, may play, you think, again, going back a little ways, but you may have played with one racket the whole time you never break any string. Didn't, didn't I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, because it was really fast back then. I mean, you're having, it was serve return, uh, first volley pass, you know, that was kind of how it was. So you weren't going to break many strings. I mean, we weren't playing with extra heavy duty balls uh, and the grass was cut pretty tight. So the, the ball was, it was going through pretty well. So that's my memory of it. I, I stand corrected if it's not exactly right, but there was definitely not very much of changing rackets. That's interesting. Fair. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, your transition into coaching, and I know we have um, mutual contacts here. I told you I'm from Chicago. University of Illinois is a couple hours from where I live, but um, friendly with Brad Dancer, as I know you obviously have a connection with Brad as well. That 2017 run with, with Kevin making the finals of the U.S. Open was so great. Um, how did you end up with, with Kevin? And talk a little bit about your, your success uh, in working with Kevin. I mean, well, the obvious connection is we're both South African. Um, Kevin reached, I, I was trying to get onto the tour probably from the start of 2013. I'd been in South Africa and not really enjoying being coaching at a club and at, at an academy with, you know, I really felt like my niche was to be out on the tour and uh, trying to help tour players. And I got the word kind of out on the street that I was looking to get on tour and Kevin approached me towards the end of the year. And he said, let's give it a go. And we, we got off we got off to a really great start. I mean, he went final of Delray, final of Acapulco, quarterfinals, India Wells. You know, it was going pretty easy. Um, yeah, we we got on really well and we could we could we could speak a common language, you know, that was uh, just really try to simplify his game. And I think he he came from uh, a background where he tried to do like a lot of different things. And I felt like when he just kept his game really simple and very direct. That's when he had his most success. So did, was his disposition different away from the arena? Having interviewed him a few times, he just strikes me as an incredibly balanced, even keel type of guy. But on the other hand, you're leading a high strung life. It's not easy. All the pressures and playing these tournaments and reaching the finals of the Open. Did, tell us a little bit more about Kevin as an individual and how you sort of worked your way through these tense times with him to help him deal with the emotions. Yeah. I mean, you're hundred percent right. Kevin is, he's learned to have a balance in his life. He, he, you know, he grew up in, in South Africa, very, as a very diligent, uh, hardworking guy, always trying to not leave any stone unturned, trying to tick every single box, you know, trying to make sure everything was looked after. And I think sometimes what happened to him is he got a little bit too, in depth into that sort of process uh and when like as i said previously when he actually played his best we were able to really simplify things and, and keep his game uh very simple give him just a couple of simple cues uh easy cues that he you know he could okay i've got to do this i've got to do that um because otherwise he he would it happened a couple of times he'd kind of get lost out on the match court and that was you know that's when he he didn't really have a sort of an identity on the court 
How did you feel about his performance against Rafa in the final? And what were your what was your sort of strategic counsel going into it? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we knew Rafa was going to play really far back, and we wanted you know we wanted Kevin to try to play a little bit more short angles up the court and things like that was not something he was particularly comfortable with. And it's definitely not something that's easy to execute when it's a little bit out of your comfort zone when you're going into a Grand Slam final. So it's, it's we've seen it many times where guys will lose a final, but they weren't really ever in the match. Sort of, you know, they were kind of trying to, I don't want to say put on a good show, but they were a little bit overwhelmed by it. And that's absolutely not, it's not, a, I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a massive stage. And I feel like there was a couple of things in hindsight that we could have done differently, but I mean, Rafa is when he gets to those stages of tournaments, he's proven that he's, he's really, really difficult to beat. Yeah. That's well said. Um, I guess now with your focus with Riley and we know Riley's been having great results as of late. Uh, I know I spoke to JY uh, a couple of days ago when I said, I'd be talking to you and I know you, you guys are in contact. I assume you're working very close with, with Jay as well. Is it the three, you know, Riley, you and Jay, Riley, you, Jay and JY, all of you guys obviously working for the same goal. How's that going with Riley? And I guess talk about some of the things you're really focused on. you got Indian Wells and, and Miami coming up. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I'm actually staying at Jay's house right now. So yeah, everything is going, uh, we get along very well. Uh, I feel like we both have a, a low sort of ego point. So, you know, if, if we're both in the court, he's totally happy for me to lead the, the session or I'm totally happy for him to lead the session. And then, you know, JY is an incredibly smart guy. He's uh, uh, super good with stats um, and analyzing opponents. So we, we just try to get as much information as possible. And then uh, obviously the kind of simple Riley's game is pretty simple when, you know, when he plays direct and when he has very simple patterns, that's when he tends to execute, you know, he plays his best because it's, it's a simple execution. What about yeah, that, those back weeks? Just a little bit on that, Neville, that, you know, with Dallas and Del Rey and a win and a final, and he, he really seemed even better to me than he had been last summer when we saw him come into his own. What do you think led to that? Because he was at a very high level for two straight weeks. Yeah, I mean, I think if you watched his matches in Australia, he played a ton of really good matches in Australia. And uh, I mean, the first week he, he played a great match against Cressy, lost. I mean, he had, I couldn't tell you how many he had. I think he had 10 break points in the match. Um, you know, he, he 12 10 in the super, in the, in the, in the tiebreaker. So it was, it was a great match. We felt pretty good about that. The following week, he played two really clean matches against Jordan Thompson and Nakashima. Uh, and then and then lost to Andy Murray, who actually played a bit, one of the best matches I've seen him play in a long, long time. I don't know, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but Andy played a really high level. And then you know, in Australian Open, he 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 had an incredible match against Kevin first round actually, and then uh, Dominic Cup for second round, who he actually hadn't beaten before. And then against Chapo, there was it was a very it was four sets, but very close. I mean, he he played a fairly poor tiebreaker in the first set and then won the second set. So, you know, potentially could have been up two sets to love. And he, he's just been, I think his overall consistency this year and buying into the process that we, we're putting together has been really high. And so his level has been pretty high. I mean, his, all of his matches, he's played 50, I think he's 11 and four for the year. And I mean, this, if you watch all of them, you can pick anyone, you're, you're pretty much going to see the same sort of thing that you throughout. Is there one or two things that you can share that you're comfortable sharing 
that you're focusing on again, these next few tournaments and you go to the clays and go from there um, with your current work with them. Well, you know, we, we know the numbers on Riley's serve. I mean, he's going to hold serve between 90 and 95% of the time. So we have to try to create up more opportunities for him to break serve. And I think if, if you look at the, the numbers this year compared to last year, you know, he's definitely creating way more opportunities to break. The, the numbers in terms of games won hasn't, it hasn't changed as much as we would have liked. But definitely, I mean, he's having break points in most of the matches he's played, which is something that has changed from, from last year. No, that's great. And I want to kind of ask this question from a, a player versus coaching angle. You as a player, and I know uh, the game has changed a little bit. The equipment obviously has changed. But you as a player, when you were being coached versus now you being the coach, were there things that if you could remember your coach emphasized when you were playing that were different than what you are emphasizing now when you are the coach with someone as Kevin or Riley? Yeah, I think you you tend to take the things that work for you and then it becomes also about knowing your subject. You have to know your player, know what your player wants, what they're looking for, you know, what sort of information they, they want to hear. So, you know, for me, I, I really like my player to trust their, their tennis IQ because I feel like you can only prepare your player for probably the first 30 to 40 minutes of the match. You know, once, once each of you have sort of put your cards on the table, then things can change. And so then you just got to make sure that they they trust their IQ and that you've given them enough confidence to be able to go out there and they're prepared well enough to be able to go there. And if something changes to be able to change with and be calm and go with the change and recognize the change, obviously. Steve and I have had this talk with several of our guests and I remember talking to Brad Gilbert about it in depth, you know, each player is different and, and Kevin is mild mannered. Riley's I would say pretty mild mannered as well. I mean, he's got ups and downs his emotions, but I, I would I would claim he's pretty mild-mannered as well. Before the match, are you someone who just gives your player a ton of information and that player can absorb it all? Or are you one of the quick hitters, two or three things, and boom, you're gone? Yeah, you're no, gone. I, I, I definitely prefer five, five points maximum uh, or cues, whatever you want to call them. Uh, this is what you want to focus on out there today. Boom, 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 boom. And the only thing you need to worry about is pay attention to that particular pattern or that change of plan or something like that. Uh, but go ahead and execute your things at your level. Cause I remember Steve and I, when, when we were talking to Brad, when he, when he was coaching Andre, Andre could absorb so much information and Brad can, we all know Brad can talk, right? He can give and, it. Yeah. <laughs> he can give it, And he would give Andre so much information he could absorb. And then when he worked with someone like Andy Roddick, Andy, he brain didn't process like that. And he's super, super smart. But it's just a different way of thinking. Andy's like, Brad, give me a couple things and boom, you know, leave me alone type of thing. And right. It's right, intriguing right. to see, like you said, kind of know your subject. It's so important. Mm. Oh, yeah, exactly. So expanding on what David was saying, the Riley versus Kevin in that respect, how, how does it differ from your standpoint? What the, the way you guide them, the types of things you tell them? Well, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, obviously, because of the size, there's, there's going to be a lot of similarities. So there's just a couple of subtleties that you, you might throw in there, you know, a few intangibles. I mean, when, when I was with Kevin, we worked really, really hard on trying to get him, you know, what I found, what we found with him is that the longer points went on, he tended to lose his court position, you know. So that was something we said, well, okay, the shorter, the as efficiently as you can make points short, let's try to work on things that can do that. And with Riley, He's, he's a little bit more comfortable staying in points. I mean, he moves great. I mean, he I hate moves really well for his Yeah, I, I really hate 
the expression move well for a big guy because he actually, I mean, there's not many guys on the tour that would beat him over 40 yards. He's lightning quick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Do you think that's really one of the fundamental, no disrespect to John Isner, but is that one of the reasons why he's having this success? I know they've had some incredibly tight matches and the record breaking tiebreaker, et cetera. But is that, do you think that that seems to be the sort of a common viewpoint among the Cognoscenti in tennis, that it's his speed that separates him from John Isner? Yeah. And I mean, I think with, with, um, I want to give all the credit to Jay and Jay Y, you know, they, they, they set out their stall a couple of years ago already saying, well, you know, we really want to make sure that we want to make Riley a better tennis player. You know, yeah, we all know he can serve great. We all know what he can do, but we actually want him to be a good tennis player as well. You know, and I think that's what you're seeing. You know, he's actually playing really good tennis. Of course, he's holding serve. He's going to do that. But he's playing really good tennis. And, and it's, it's crowd-pleasing tennis. is very entertaining. Uh, and he's not as uh, in inverted commas when he would describe himself as a, as a true bot. You know what I mean? As a true serve bot. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And and I, I do have one uh, final question before we want to end. But before we do that, I want to give Steve, Steve one more opportunity. If we if we covered everything we wanted with Neville, I know we could talk a long time. Neville, I know you're getting ready to go to, to Indian Wells, so we don't want to keep you too long. But Steve, yeah, before just- I end with my final uh, item, anything else we got? Yeah, just wondering how now that you've reached this stage of your coaching career, is it a little less? So, is there a little less tension, or is it still sitting on pins and needles through every match? Because I know that's got to be one of the toughest parts of the job is playing that match and getting inside your player and 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 just dealing with the flow of the match. Has has that changed across time? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I've matured as a coach as well, and. Trusting that, you know, like it's actually funny you asked that question because Jay and I were just talking about that just the other day. It's like, well, you know, we do everything you can to prepare your player and then you kind of send them off on their way and say, off you go, go and go and perform. And it's out of your hands. So really, you've got to just trust your preparation, trust your, you know, your your statistics and, and trust what you what you told the player, what, what information. So sometimes you get it right. Sometimes you get you don't get it right. But and you're pretty calm in the box, Neville, right? On a scale of one to ten, ten being the most calm. Are you are you an eight or a nine in the box? Uh, outwardly, we know we know what's going on inside. Oh, out, out, outwardly, I think I'm maybe about a five or a six. I would guess. <laughs> and inwardly, oh, about 12. a twelve. Twelve. Okay. <laughs> Very funny. Well, hey, we appreciate your time, but I do want to end with one other item and it's it's a mutual friend of ours he's he's an amazing individual and that's Alistair McCall I know you've met you've known Alistair for what over 35 years I believe oh um, yeah even longer yeah even longer I know you grew up with him and I and I know um Alistair's a good tennis player in his own right I know you got the best of him and I believe it was a 12 and under tournament I, <laughs> I did some research I did some talking with Alistair but you know by all means what happened back then doesn't matter right what matters is what's going on right now Absolutely. so you and Alistair McCoy Alistair's got that beautiful one-handed backhand you break his game down give me the scout you versus Alistair one set give me the score and, and, and the scout I think that's a very unkind question Dave <laughs> because uh He's a good buddy of mine, and I, I, he's got. He, you're quite right. He does have a beautiful one-hander. Um, let's go on on a tennis court. I think I would very comfortably take care of him. But on any and on a golf course, and then on any other physical activity, he's got me very comfortably on the same on the same scale. Fair enough. But yeah, for those that don't um, don't follow Alistair, definitely he's he's really great with high performance coaching, and it just doesn't help high performers. 
it's any athlete, any coach, even parents. I mean, he runs the gamut. He's the best of the best in his field. He's got several books. Go follow him. It's the McCall method. He's on Facebook. He's on Instagram. He's on Twitter. Um, Neville, any other words about Alistair? I know you're, you're, you're no, he, I mean, I could, I, I could not agree with you more. I mean, he's just a top guy, super motivational guy, very positive influence in my life. And with, uh, you know, we work together with Kevin, we work together with Chung and, uh, you know, I absolutely go out there, check out his books. I mean, I, my kids read them and, uh, I think they're, they're very motivational and very informative as well. Thank you, Neville. And thank you for your time and best of luck with Riley. Uh, moving forward. Guys, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thank you, Neville.